Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Joining us, we are very glad to have Carl Liebert, President and Chief Executive Officer of AutoNation, which reported earnings. Uh, the earnings uh, did disappoint a little bit. The question that I have, Carl, is that looking at the auto landscape right now, it does seem like people are saying we have seen peak auto. How are you adjusting to that new reality? Uh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me on today. It's uh, my honor to be here. And, and uh, look, I, I think uh, we, we've been talking about this for quite some time at AutoNation that there was going to be a slowing of retail sales. And uh, the, the play we called and wanted to execute is to really, really focus on profits per vehicle and uh, and how we thought about delivering on our commitments to our shareholders. Um, and the first quarter turned out uh, extraordinarily well from us when you start to think about uh, our revenue being down, but our, but our profits and our earning per share, uh, a new record for Q1. We feel good about it. Uh, We've got a long way to go as uh, we're at the end of this economic cycle. So we're watching inventories closely and making sure we're executing the play. So Carl, talk to us a little bit about the used car market and the relative. I know you guys have kind of shaded your focus a little bit towards that side of the business. Talk about the relative profitability there and, and what upside you see in that side of the business. Well, and I think this is um, one of the things we're really proud about in the used car space is our one price strategy. We know our customers really, really like that one price strategy. It creates transparency. It creates the opportunity for them to uh, perhaps get a, a nearly new vehicle, something that they may not get, uh, can't afford when it's uh, a new car. And so we've thought about the used car um, business in a, in a different way, just a standpoint of how it can differentiate auto donation. I think we still have some work to do there, um, but we're, we're working hard at it. To um, We're predominantly known for our new vehicle sales. It's what, it's what made us great and um, delivered on that. And uh, we've uh, got five AutoNation uh, USA stores that are used car only that are continually to um, improve. And we're learning lots of uh, exciting insights around where we want to go there. But we see that as a significant opportunity for us in the future and um, not to open more uh, used only stores, but just to learn how we can maximize the opportunity for both customers and AutoNation in the used car space. Carl Liebert, uh, President and CEO of AutoNation, is that partly that play of uh, sort of understanding the used car sales market a little bit better? Is that partly because we are late in this credit cycle and you are starting to see uh, consumers be a little bit more cautious with where they spend? Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say that we're we are late in the credit cycle. We we do see consumers are are, are are surprisingly holding up well and they're strong. And and then the idea that we're probably not going to get um, you know it depends on what the Fed does, but we do we get a rate increase or not this year based on some of the things um, we're reading and hearing. Um, I think that adds stimulus on top of the uh, you know the GDP number we saw that just got uh, announced this morning, but. It, but make, I think the trend that exists 
that's out there is consumers are looking for nearly new vehicles so they don't have to, to take that depreciation when they drive off the lot. And and so the ability to provide them with the right inventory, with the right experience, um, those are the things that we think are uh, real could be real hallmarks for our strategy going forward. Carl, can you talk a little bit about the uh your financial services side of the business, I know that's been an area that of focus for you, uh, for your company and, and for the growth. Yeah, I, I'd love to. So thank you. So, you know, we've all, we've been an industry leader in uh, customer financial services uh, for quite some time. And, 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 but in the first quarter we saw, we were up uh, 7%. Uh, or $124 per vehicle. Just for what we said is we, we launched our private label uh, experience in, in uh, financial, uh, customer financial services. That was our first, what we refer to as a brand extension. And uh, we're very pleased with the progress we made in the first quarter there. So Carl, it's interesting. One of the things that you know we've been hearing about from as we take a look at the you know global auto industry is this concept of, of peak auto. How do you yeah. feel about that? I mean, you know, you got Ubers and Lyft and, and so on. And is that a concern that you have? Yeah, I, you know, look, I, I think the industry is going to be uh, down from a little over 17 million to high 16s um, this year. Uh, my first week on the on the job, I, I took a team to Waymo, and we were out in Silicon Valley. Uh, we have a partnership with them, and we're working closely with them in the Phoenix market with several pilots. Uh, and uh, and I think Uber and Lyft. One of the one of the great things about them is um, people are going to buy vehicles, and then people are going to need those vehicles to be serviced. And that's when uh, you having stores coast to coast for uh, that uh, we can service those vehicles. I I, I think the mobility space is going to change uh, and transform. The great news that because of our, our store locations and our service locations, we can play in that space and be a part of the, that Uber or Lyft driver as well as uh, the autonomous space when and if it finally gets here. So one thing that uh, you have focused on is on new vehicle margins and the idea yeah. of not discounting. What's the reception been like from consumers to that? Well, you know, this is the, the, the great thing is is uh, we had 35 stores um, win the J.D. Power Satisfaction Award. We were far and away the, the, the largest uh, represented there. Um, what, what's, what's interesting is our, our customers come in and they don't like all the, I'll call it, uh, when I say discounting, it's all the different offers and they feel like, are they getting the best deal? And so as we've uh, really managed our inventories well in the first quarter relative to the rest of the industry, making sure we have the right vehicles for customers. We're able to talk to them uh, and and get to a good price for them and then not come in at the last minute and say, oh, we can offer this incentive or we can take it. We have this incentive to offer you because um, that we know that exists and we, we know it exists, especially uh, at the end of quarters uh, when that happens. And that doesn't build trust with customers. So I'd say from um, some of the satisfaction awards that we were fortunate enough to right. win, um, AutoNation customers are responding very well to the strategy and the, yep. and the execution we're running. Carl Liebert, thank you so much for joining us. Carl's president and CEO of AutoNation joining us on the phone.
While a growing practice in residential and commercial construction is sustainable construction, one of the ways is repurposing shipping containers into living and working environments. To help us explain this story, we welcome Paul Galvin, Paul's chairman and chief executive officer of SG Blocks, based in Brooklyn, New York, but Paul joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Paul, welcome to Bloomberg. Give us a sense of kind of what you guys do in terms of repurposing these containers and, and, and how they're used. Sure. So great to be here. Thanks for having us and always supporting sustainability at Bloomberg. Um, our business is premised upon taking the heavy gauge shipping containers that are aggregating in America because we're a net importer and using proprietary technology, we use a very small carbon footprint and turn these intermodal units of transportation into intermodal units of construction. And so our uh, company delivers uh, medical, educational, residential, and commercial structures uh, through prefabricating the finishes of shipping containers that sit on flatbed trucks, stack nine high naturally, are made of a heavy gauge steel uh, that is enormously protective. It's core 10 steel. It's the same steel they build bridges with. And so our question is, why wouldn't you want to put your family or your business or your students in the strongest structure you can make? So can you give us a sense of how many of these structures have been built and where? Oh, we've delivered a, a structure to 49 of 50 states and three out of seven continents. There are 22 million containers in the world. Um, we work with a company called Con Global. Uh, they manage about 60% of the domestic inventory of containers. So when they come out of circulation, we take them and uh, modify them, create windows, doors, take out sidewalls, put them through a modular factory where they come out on the other side 95% complete windows, doors, floors, cabinets, appliances, and then they get to the site and we, del we install about 1,000 square feet an hour. So if your structure is 5,000 square feet or less, it'll be erected in a day. So, I mean, as I come out of Newark Airport and I look at the port of Newark, I see stacks and stacks and stacks of these containers. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. And, okay, and then I saw on your, on, I think on your website, you turn these things into like a Starbucks. Yeah. In where does all that happen? <laughs> so a lot of it happens at the port, and then we have great modular partners to do the interior and finish work. But the reason why uh, containers are such a good form of construction is because they're robust, they're abundant, they're recycled, they're much stronger than wood construction. So how much cheaper is it? And basically, what are the margins like here for you? So we work on a probably a blended 20% margin on our product, but we're, we're materially less expensive than urban construction. Uh, we can deliver a product, uh, multi-story, multi-family, in about the $200 a square foot range. And that's uh, when you look at New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, uh, the tri-state area. It's a peanut. <laughs> it's nothing. <laughs> so have any municipalities or cities approached you about providing housing for the homeless, for example? Uh, by way of background, I uh, founded and ran a, a homeless AIDS charity for 20 years, which led me into this line of work. Uh, one, of our, one of our big value propositions is uh, affordable and workforce housing that used to just be regular housing for people. But what's happened over the years is we've been kind of brainwashed into thinking affordable housing requires the government to subsidize it with tax credits or tax certificates. So if 100 people want to do affordable housing, maybe five get the award. Because we build so economically and we build so quickly and you get your revenue in half the time, we're able to deliver affordable housing 
private market, no government subsidy. So in New York State, it takes 48 months to do an affordable housing project. In California, 60 months. We can do that project start to finish in 12 months. Do you ever get pushback from people who say they just don't think it's that pretty? That, that basically these, these, these containers stacked up, they don't want that in their backyard? Um, my mom has said that, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay. But to be honest, I don't... Whatever house you guys live in, we could build it out of containers and put the same outside covering the container and you wouldn't know, but you'd be living in an earthquake and a hurricane-resistant house. You can go to our websites. Our structures look and feel like every other structure. Wow, and, and again, just the cost differential just on a square foot is how much less than like a- Oh, in major square? markets, we could be 20 to 30% less than traditional construction because they have to deal with prevailing wage, meaning every person that sets foot on that construction site is paid a union wage. We're doing the work in a factory in Texas where it's 68 degrees. Uh, you know, it begs the question, well, of course we should do construction indoors. W would they build your car in your driveway? Well, uh, just real quick here, 20 seconds. You raised almost a billion dollars in financing recently. What's it for? Um, just to keep a little cash on the balance sheet, we have a very big backlog of 100, uh, about a million square feet to deliver, 100, 100 uh, million bucks. And we're looking forward to our first generation of multi-story, multi-family workforce housing projects, one in the Bronx, one in Menticello, New York. So this is something, uh, there's going to be a lot to hear. Construction needs to be disruptive. Rents are so high and houses are so high. Because contractors are getting away with murder. They're building at 500 a foot. How yeah. could you do anything affordable? Paul Galvin, keeping some, po some money in his pocket with the... Uh, Very cool story. Nearly, nearly a billion dollars. The truly cool story. I love this idea. Paul Galvin, head of sustainable construction uh, company, SG Blocks. Really interesting to see uh, what they're doing and how they're using containers. Well, despite the better-than-expected GDP number this morning, our next guest has a decidedly cautious view of the economy. Tom Atterbury is partner and portfolio manager for FPA. He manages a little over $6.5 billion based in Los Angeles, but joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Tom, what did you see in the GDP report today? Was I mean, that 3.2% print, obviously, you know, much better than expected, but when you dig down, what did you see? Part of the things I dug down that, that concern me longer term, sort of you want to think out six months, 12 months and such is, you had a, a pretty sizable contribution from inventory. So they've got someone's expecting to sell that merchandise. And that, that always concerns us some. If I think about uh, retail sales and, and what's been going on from the consumer, it's okay. I guess it's the best way you want to define it. I've read some things recently that talk about because you have a late Easter or Passover, that that tends to give you better retail sales in the month that ha happens, which then sort of flip back the other way the month afterwards, because it's a fairly odd event to have those holidays this late in the season. So if I think of that as well, I'm going, okay, working through some of that's telling me I really don't have as a robust economy as I think I do. 
I'm struggling to square that with some of the earnings that we've seen recently with, for example, Hasbro and Mattel showing that, that people are still spending on toys and, disp- you know, they have disposable income. Amazon came in, massive returns. And yes, Amazon is, uh, is, is definitely disrupting all of the consumer sector, but you're seeing strong results out of others as well. And yet here we have the bond market pricing in a 71% chance of a rate cut by January next year. That just doesn't seem to square. One of the difficulties that makes the things that you've talked about, if we had this conversation 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I think everything, as you said, gets easier to, as you put it, square. But now I'm in a position where this economy is not driven solely by what it does internally. It has to deal with how well does China grow? China being much, much larger, it's the second largest economy in the world. It's had difficulties with growth because it's trying to swallow a lot of debt it's taken on. And then I look at Europe in just general, right, not specific countries, but in general, and realize it is having difficulty as well. And the reason I walk through that, all three of those are fairly into, you know, interdependent with each other. And so it becomes much less of one of, oh, people in the U.S. are buying more toys from Hasbro, right? Versus, okay, I've got an extremely slow economy going on in in Europe, and I've got a slowing economy going on in China. Those are playing bigger roles in how well do things do. I mean, you are right in the fact that the tax laws have helped us domestically for the consumer to spend. Um, A year ago, it was much more of, I'm going to give you a bonus, fill in the dollars, but what was it? A thousand, maybe 2,000, something in that range. To that started to go away. And now I've got to deal with, well, how is China dealing with its debt? You know, how is it dealing with that? How is Germany trying to figure out how to export to somebody other than China and get things growing again? How are the Italians going to get out of the mess that they're in? And I think that plays a bigger role. So as we look out to 2020, is there a recession in your outlook for 2020 in the U.S.? If you look at what the bond market's trying to tell you today, and granted, it will tell you different things. It, it moves around. It's giving you this very flat yield curve. Not inverted, but it's close. Okay, and it's been flattening for a while. If I just take what is that trying to tell me? And what it tells me is in the 12 to 18 months from now, if I look at that flat today and just think out that long, it's telling me I have a bigger and bigger probability of recession occurring. If you invert it, especially if you look at a three-month to 10-year, and it did invert during March for five days. If it inverts for 10 days in a row, it's a reasonable indicator to tell you, okay, 12 to 18 months out, you're going to have an economy that slows down. So we're fighting with that. And so that's telling me the probability of that occurring is becoming elevated. And I need to in, sort of invest with that thought in mind. So uh, given all of that, how are you investing? So the things that we find attractive... I'll go with that first, is that, okay, if I looked at a, a, a 15-year agency mortgage pool, it's two or three years old, so it was issued in 2016 or 17 or maybe 15. I have very good underwriting standards. I have low LTV. I've got something today that's basically a three-year average life that I can earn 276, about. So that looks attractive. And one of the reasons it looks attractive, that spread has widened a little bit over the last year. If I compare that to a asset-backed security with subprime auto loans with about a three-year average life to it, I get 
a little over 276. I might get three if I'm lucky. I'm going, wait a second. You mean for 20 or 25 or 10 basis points more, I'm taking on a three-year-old used car with a 620 FICO score at 100 LTV, or I can take someone with a 750 FICO score and a 50 LTV on a house? So up in quality uh, trade. This is yeah, up in quality. It's yep, an up in yep. quality trade. So that's on the high quality side. When you look at the credit side, it tells you, um, you know, I'm back to where I was in February of last year or, you know, last fall. Well, wait a second. My spread isn't that attractive. My yield isn't that attractive. So credit, things triple B and below, really aren't that attractive either. Let them roll off. So it's go up in quality. Try to go as far out in maturity as you can without exposing yourself to too much interest rate risk. Get as much liquidity as you can to your, you know, to the point about recession, prepare yourself for when that's occurring and be ready with your capital to deploy in a different fashion when it happens. So it sounds like little to no interest in high yield, letting the high yield stuff run off and redeploy. Yeah. Is, there any, is there any areas in high yield that you still think are attractive today? One of the things about how we manage makes a comment about general areas difficult because it's not, we don't sector-based. We're looking for what's the risk I'm taking What's the value of the assets? What's the yield I'm getting? So that could take you anywhere, right? Not a specific sector or another specific sector. There just aren't many that, that show up. What happens is everything you look at, the yield is too low given the risk that you're taking. And you, when you value the assets in a more distressed fashion or a downturn type of fashion, you're going, wow, I don't have a lot of protection there. Every once in a while, we'll find something of interest. It might be, might be a dip loan and someone going through reorganization. It might be something beat up in retail that would go, you know, that's really okay. It's, it's really reflects all the bad news and none of the potential good news. What are the kind of returns that you're telling clients to expect uh, annualized over the next number of years? So if you think about what we've just been talking about and what you kind of go, okay, what's my best and worst cases? So I think about the last three years and how the portfolio's done in a rising interest rate environment, okay, it did about 260, 268, okay. If things just sort of stay where they are, okay, I've got a fee that you gotta pay and I'm earning somewhere two and three quarters to three at best, maybe that number looks more like two and a half. And if rates rise from here, uh, actually probably something that looks like two, two and a half as well. You know, I guess the point is you come back is you kind of end up going, a little more than inflation, but yeah. nothing really great. Tom Atterbury, thank you so much for being with us. Tom Atterbury, partner and portfolio manager at FPA First Pacific Advisors. Uh, he oversees more than $6.5 billion FPA, uh, about $26 billion joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Of course, we have our eye today on Intel because right now we are looking uh, at what is uh, absolutely its worst day uh, since uh, since I think 2008 at this point. Uh, joining us now to talk about it is Mandeep Singh. He uh, covers the sector for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, what, what's your take on it? Well, uh, I, I guess it just goes to show that uh, you know the chip demand is uh, you know for a company like Intel is. Still, uh, you know, trying to recover uh, from, you know, the, CF, the CEO change and, and just in general, I, I, I guess 
uh, it's not that obvious for a company like Intel that you know the demand is robust, and you know that's that's what we are seeing. Um, so it's it's just amazing. They've had a good performance for such a long time. They haven't had a, that miss. But I, I guess it really. I guess I guess the concern is does it call into question some of the the growth, whether it's cloud or just some of the great spending we've been? Is and do you I, think that is a valid concern when you think about big tech overall? I would say, you know, within tech, there are certain pockets like software, cloud, you know, where the tech spending is really strong. When it comes to semis and chips, it's kind of investment cycle driven. And what we are seeing right now is uh, the investment cycle for chips specifically, you know, um, and, and more so towards cloud data centers, that's where the spending is going. And, and that may be tapering off because, you know, we have been in this healthy environment for such a long time now. So at some point, the party will end. So the party, I mean, we talk about the biggest drop since 2008, coming off a really high uh, valuation. I mean, like, l l let's put this into perspective here. Uh, we saw an incredible run up in semiconductor uh, stocks. And, you know, yesterday we were speaking with Anand Srinivasan, your colleague, and he was saying fundamentals have to prove that, that, that these, this optimism is, is, is correct. How bad is this? Or is this just sort of a reality check? Guys, you got ahead of yourselves. Well, I, I think with Intel, it's a little bit of a company-specific case as well. And, and what you're seeing right now is, uh, you know, uh, Intel is going through that CEO transition phase, as well as they missed the boat on mobility somewhat. You know, when, when I look at the demand for chips, it's really geared towards cloud. That's what you don't see, you know, um, with uh, Intel, or it's not that obvious that they're at the forefront of it. And yeah. Interesting. Mandy, we're going to also want to bring in uh, Olivia Zaleski. Olivia is a deals reporter for Bloomberg News. We just want to get her thoughts a little bit and yours, Mandeep, uh, on some of the upcoming tech deals. Olivia joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Olivia, thanks for joining us. Again, hey we've got uh, some deals coming up on, on tech. What are your thoughts first on the uh, Uber filing? Well, the so let's remember that Uber filed... Uh, few weeks ago that what came out this morning was just a price range update and so that companies typically do this where they'll file initially with no price range uh, in their s1 and then they'll update once they get a better sense of the market and what the demand is um, and the the market is telling them to be conservative which I think is the, the key sort of point here uh, this morning they, they went out with a 44 to fifty dollar range uh, which is quite conservative uh, and puts uber's valuation at about 84 billion dollars and let's remember that months ago when bankers first started talking to uber they were saying your your valuation could be at 120 billion um, so this is quite a step down for them but I think it's really sort of a um, kind of come to Jesus moment for them to say, okay, let's be conservative. Let's come out at a, at a price range that's appropriate so that we can sort of avoid some of the blunders that Lyft saw. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see that Uber is ratcheting back its expectations. Uh, Slack also submitted its plans to U.S. regulators to go public, and it actually went through an unusual direct listing. Olivia, I'm sure you'll be digging through all of that. Olivia Zaleski, Bloomberg Deals reporter. Also, our thanks to Mandeep Singh, senior tech industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber's IPO filing, Slack's impending listing, sort of interesting to see how both of these uh, are coming at a time of really split demand, people to demanding to see uh, the money.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.